All right. We have a few things coming up. We have a homework assignment that's due tomorrow. If you're bringing me a paper copy, I know a few of you have turned it in today. You can turn that in after class or email it to me by the end of the day tomorrow is fine. We also have a quiz coming up, a quiz, a quiz coming up, a quiz that is available on chapters 10 and 11. We've finished 10. We're more than halfway through 11. We'll finish 11 up today and hopefully get into 12. And that's available through Sunday, so you can take that. I know a couple have taken it already. You can take that any time now through between now and Sunday. Did I that right? Is that Sunday or is that Monday? What day did I write down now? I'm confusing myself. Okay. I think that's Monday. If I'm not too confused. Uh, exam three coming up. And that's still a question mark for me because right now we've done chapter 10 and part of 11, but we haven't gotten to chapter 12 yet at all. And that's going to be pushing it that week. So I'm not sure exactly how to handle this. We're having, the problem we're having is that I am a little bit behind. So I don't really want to push the exam too much later. I could push it one week later. You know, probably do it the following week, but then we lose that entire week because, of course, the Easter break is the end of that week, so we only meet one time that week anyway. Well, that would certainly be enough time to make sure we're through everything. Uh, so that's one option. Another option is to cancel it all together and double up on the next exam, which I really don't want to do to you too, because then, you know, I know, you have an, I know my exams can be bad as it is, and trying to do six chapters instead of three is a lot, is a lot worse. The other thing I was thinking of potentially doing is giving you the exam on the 29th, but not during class. Essentially giving you the exam, take it home, bring it back. You like that. You, li you like that. <laughs> I, I will warn you that that makes it, I don't do this exactly the same types of questions. There's not going to be a lot of, like some of the stuff right now in my exams, you could go look up in the book very easily. You know, what's the closest planet to the sun? Well, I can go look that up. Or, you know, like the, we did the quiz, draw an HR diagram. I'm not going to give you a draw an HR diagram, which I might do in class here. I might say, okay, draw, sketch me the HR diagram like we did for the quiz. I would have you interpret the HR diagram. You still have access to your books and notes, but I did want to give you that warning. It's not just going to be, you know, a bunch of questions that I normally give real easy things that oh, I, can, oh, I can look up in the index and just see the answer immediately. You might have to read that section and get something on it. But I, can cer I certainly am willing to do, to do that, that, that as well. That kind of frees up the class, frees up the class period. So I was going to open, I'm not doing, I haven't made a final decision on it. I'm leaning against the middle one. I really don't want to double up the exam and do two exams in one class period. That's just, that's just a lot for you. I can put it a week later and do a standard type exam that I've been doing, or I'm willing to, I can give you the one that, and I'm not going to say it's going to be harder. It's going to require you to think a little bit on the questions. It's not just going to be basic knowledge questions, you know, the diameter of the sun, or it's going to be, you know, this is 10 times the diameter of the sun. You know, things that I might think you'd know that I might expect you to remember in a class, I would not do that. I'm sorry, you had a question, Cameron? Oh, no, I was just going to ask if you were going to make it more um, like essay questions. It would be exactly the same format. Exactly, it would still have true, false, multiple, but, but the multiple choice would not be necessarily things that you can just go and, I mean, you can look them up in the book, but they're not going to be something where it's going to necessarily state the answer all that, few of them probably will, but you know, not all, some of them you're going to have to think of something or it's going to, well, you know, what would happen and that kind of question. So, any thoughts? You, you like the take home. It's just, it's just nice and comfortable. The nice thing with that is you do have, 
And I do ask you, don't, don't waste hours and hours and hours on it, but that's up to you. You know, you can spend 20 hours working on it if you really want to. Um, so that certainly is an, is an optional. Is there anyone who would not, who would really not want to do it that, would absolutely not want to do it that way? Or would... The 29th would be Thursday. So I'd give it to you on a Thursday, it would be due back the following Tuesday. So you'd have the entire weekend to work. I don't want to give it to you on a Tuesday and say it has to be done Thursday because people have a lot. This, that gives you the most amount of time to work on it. So you'd, ha you'd have almost an entire week. You'd get it on Thursday. You'd get it on Thursday of that week. And that would give me, by Thursday, I'll have covered chapter, I'll be through chapter 12. So we'll be good on the material-wise. And then you'd have through the day on Tuesday. You could bring it back to me Tuesday in class. If you really want to wait until after Tuesday class and you want to scan it and email it to me and take that chance on an exam, you can do it. You know, it's one thing with the homework. It's a little pushing it with an exam, but you could also do that as well. And of course, I will put copies of it. Uh, I would, if I did that, I would put copies of it up on D2L. So you'd have, if you, if you lost your copy, you could at least go get one so you're not stuck. You would be able to you know, email me and ask questions. You know, so. You'd have a little more flexibility that way, and it would free me up one class period since we're, say, we're going to lose one the following week to the break anyway. So, the break is, what is it, first, second, third, fifth? It's Thursday the 5th, if I'm thinking correctly. Don't have my calendar in front of me, but. So, Thursday, the, so this would be due on the 3rd, it would be due on that Tuesday, the 1st. So you'd have, you'd get it, you'd still get it on the, still the exam was still be given on the 29th, but it would be due back April 3rd. So you'd have, you know. We'll start on time, we'll be back on schedule. We'll be back pretty close to on schedule. Pretty close. So. Other concerns, questions about it? I mean, I don't want to make it sound like I'm trying to give you the warning that they're not going to be the identical type, they're going to be very similar questions. But I do, when I look at the questions I select, you know, when I do a regular quiz in here or test, I try to look for some questions that you should, you should know the thing, something you should know. I'm not going to give you that so much when you have books and notes and internet and everything, you know, to look at. I've got to give you some things that you can't just, you know, type it in and get the answer to. You know, I want to know what you know and what you can understand about it too. So I'm not trying to sit there and saying it's going to be, you know, a graduate level astronomy test. It's not going to be. It's going to be the same type of test, same number of questions, you know, so many true-false, so many multiple choice, so many fill-ins. Should make the fill-ins a lot easier. So you don't have to try to come up with the terms. So those, those may be actually become a lot easier on it. And the essays, they say, will be, will be similar, but will be more like, you know, like homework, like the homework type questions. You can't necessarily, some things you can just look up. I'm not going to tell you to, you know, list the stages of the evolution of the sun, which I could do in here, but I might tell you to explain something about one of them, or two of them, or compare something with them. That kind of question. Sounds good? Sounds, don't care? Does it matter? I'm not seeing anybody. Sounds amazing. <laughs> okay. Why don't we plan on that? The exam will still be the 29th and will be due March 3rd. I'll plan on that. I'll have that ready for you on Thursday. March 3rd. Do March 3rd. You've got to go back in time to turn it in. So if you don't have your time travel machine, you're going to be in trouble. Huh? How about April 3rd? <laughs> Sounds better. Of 2012, not, not 2013. So I will give you that. 
Not, not next time, but on the Thursday, in a week from today, I'll give you that. And I wouldn't want to do that. I do that, you'll have the whole weekend then to, to look at it. So, and I'll be available that weekend, so if you have questions or anything, you can, you know, email me if there's a question on the exam, like you'd ask a question in class, you know, feel free to email. I'm not going to give you the answer, but I can, you know, if there's a question or if you're not sure exactly what I'm looking for, I can try to clarify it. Okay. Sounds good. We're good. Yes, sir. Was it canceled? Yeah, well, it canceled last oh. Night. There's a big, like, not a big one, a small note on the door. Oh, I didn't, didn't even know that, so. I have not heard anything. I haven't seen Professor DeLisi today, but I didn't really go. I'm, I'm downstairs, he's upstairs, so I don't usually. Was he in the castle? So hopefully not. His email doesn't work? Okay. It doesn't exist. That's odd. I've just got an email from him. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe he's just avoiding everything. <laughs> okay. That I don't know. So, but. Okay. But no, I have not heard anything. You know, usually, like last time, the one time, he just asked if I could cover it. And, you know, if he asked me today, I you know, if he gives me, you know, slight bit of warning, I can usually cover the lab, so just as easily if we need to. Okay. All right, picture of the day for today then. Uh, spiral galaxy. If you can see a little bit there, you've got a core of the galaxy and a sort of a yellowish, reddish bar going across, and then you have the blue spiral arms going around from it, around from it. And we're going to look at galaxies coming up here in a few weeks. Um, this would be a barred spiral galaxy, which means it has a bar going through the center, and then the spiral arms come off the edge of that, of that bar. So, pretty little galaxy there, but that's not really what the picture is pointing out. The picture is really, yes, it's looking at that galaxy, but it's also looking at this object right here, which is a star in that galaxy, and in fact a star that has exploded. That's a supernova. So this was discovered, this picture was taken, gosh, I scrolled up about, about a week ago. And if you took pictures going back a little before that, you know, even a week or a month before that, that star wasn't there. You took, a, you got a picture of this and it would look like, you know, ignore the fact I'm trying to block it there. there that star would have, just imagine that star gone. But it looked exactly the same and nothing else has changed. Remember, astronomically, things don't change that quickly. It takes a long time for anything to change. Well, here's the one thing in astronomy, one of the very few things that you can actually see occur. You know, when that star explodes, when that star becomes unstable, which is sort of the subject of our next chapter, chapter 12, we talk about the end life of a star. It happens on a time scale that we can see. This star would get bright very, very quickly. In the period of, you know, less than a week, it will go from being nothing, gone, to being the brightest thing in that galaxy, you know, rivaling in brightness even the center of that galaxy, which would have a lot more material associated with it. That's just one star that blew up. And that's what we're going to look at, again, over this, probably finishing this week and into next week, we'll be looking at the evolution of stars and how they change and why certain stars, you know, our sun will never do this, will never blow up. 
but why certain stars will and what's going on in, inside them that causes them to become so unstable that they tear themselves apart in some cases with a brightness that can be you know brighter than all of these other stars in the galaxy. Look at all those stars in the galaxy together, that one star is brighter than most of them. And that's again just one single star. That's not you know, a nebula, that's not a whole bunch of stars or a cluster of stars, that's a single star that has exploded. And as I said, I think that was taken about a week, about a week ago. And it is the, if I can get the count right, probably a, it's, we're pushing about 50 supernovae that have been discovered this year already. So a large number. This was supernova 2012, what was it, AW? 2012 AW. Supernovae, the first one is A. You know, supernovae 2012 A is the first one, then B is the second, so on through the alphabet. And once you get down to Z, then you go back and do AA, AB, AC, and so on. And this one is AW, so we've got, we're almost through the alphabet twice. So that gives us, what, about 40? Well, if we got through twice, it would be 50. Two, so we're at about 49. The next one might be the 50th. And there's several hundred that are discovered, is discovered each year in remote galaxies. So they occur quite often. We just don't have, we'd love to get one, it would be nice to have one occur in our own galaxy where it's much closer and where we can see it and where we may be able to identify. One of the important things we want to be able to see is that when you can find some that are really close, you can get a picture of this and you might be able to, not in a distant galaxy, but in a nearby galaxy, to see that actual star before it blew up. You know, People took pictures of that galaxy and if you can see what that star was like before it blew up, it really enhances our understanding of what's going on with, that, with those stars. What's going on with that, with that supernova? Why is it becoming unstable? What type of star was it right before it blew up? And when you can monitor it like that, you know, you can never watch one because we don't know when they're going to occur. You know, I can't tell you, you know, this star is going to explode, it's due to explode. But again, astronomy timescales. Until it actually does, that eh, might be this year, might be 100,000 years from now, you know, it's all the same. Astronomically, it does, you know, so you, you can sit there and monitor it and monitor it and monitor it. But it may not blow up in our lifetime or in a thousand lifetimes. It might be, you know, okay, you know. 250,000 years later, it decides it's time. You know, so we can't really tell that. So it's nice when we can see some that are very close that we can actually observe the star that is there, that was there before. So, questions on the picture? Questions, questions? No? Okay. So sort of appropriate in what we're talking about today. We're going to try to finish up. Whoops, I should have gone to... We got through a big chunk of this one last time. We're going to finish this up here today. We were looking at the formation of a star. So we're going back to the early stages of what happens. We'd gone through the earliest stages as the cloud collapsed. So we had big cloud and it slowly was condensing. Those very earliest stages, we can't, you can't find them on the HR diagram. They're way off there. This cloud was way too cool. You know, it goes down, HR diagram goes down, with, it's meant for stars, so it goes down to about 3,000 degrees. When you're talking about things that are tens and hundreds of degrees, they're way off the scale there. And they're also incredibly faint. They're not very, very bright, especially visibly, so they're way off hiding down in the corner there. As they slowly condense and they heat up, they start to warm up, and they actually become what we call a protostar. Not a real star, 
In order to become a real star, it has to, the object has to be producing, fusing hydrogen to helium. So it actually has to be having nuclear reactions going on in its core. That's sort of our definition of what a star is. In this case, it's a protostar. It's becoming, it's in the process of becoming a star. It's very big, 100 times the radius of the sun. So these are still big, they're still collapsing. So even something like the sun was originally much bigger, it's still in the process of collapsing here. And it's very cool, you're only talking thousands of degrees instead of the 6,000 that it will be. And that would make it relatively luminous, but not necessarily easy to see because it's buried in that cocoon. So it's got all this other material around it that's absorbing all that light and hiding it from view. If it weren't in that cocoon, it would be a relatively bright object and relatively easy to see. But that's how we can keep from confusing them with the red giants, because if you notice when we did the HR diagram, that's right up about where the red giants start to form. And it's not confused with them because it's going to be buried deep inside a cocoon. We're not really going to be able to see it directly, not with visible light at this time, the way we'd be able to see a red giant star. So this is where we'd finished up last time, and that's where we're first starting to see this forming star on the HR diagram. And at this point, we'd also be starting to form a planetary system. You'd be getting a cloud of dust around it. So as it collapses, you go from a very, very large cloud you know, tremendously diffuse cloud. It slowly collapses, 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 and becomes a star, stages three and four, um, as it's collapsing. But you're getting this disk of material around it. Most of the material's going to the center, but a little bit of it, tiny fraction, eventually became us and Jupiter and all the other planets, would have been left around to slowly coalesce and form planets. So some of the material was left behind and that would eventually become the planets. But the star is still collapsing at this time. This protostar, as I said, it's 100 times the size of the sun. It's still getting smaller and smaller. So it's still collapsing. It's not producing any energy on its own. It's not fusing hydrogen to helium to create energy as we talked about with the sun. But it is create, getting energy just because it's collapsing. When something collapses from something very big to something very small, it gains energy and heat and it causes it to heat up inside as well. So as it's collapsing, it gets what we call gravitational energy. So it's getting energy just from the gravity pulling everything down to the center. And it's going to get more and more energy and it's going to actually glow hot, several thousand degrees, very deep in the red or the infrared, just because of that gravitational collapse. And that is what, what the source of energy is for this protostar. It's not nuclear reactions, nothing like that is going on yet. It is just the energy of the gravitational collapse, just the fact that it's collapsing from something very big to something very small that releases a lot of energy as that occurs. Now if you look at the last stages as it collapses down here, so we went up to stage four. That was the protostar. Then it continues to collapse. As it collapses, it's warming up a little bit as it gets smaller and smaller. Again, the gravitational energy is increasing, so it's heating it up a little bit. But it still has not started producing energy, its own energy. It's just due to the collapse of gravity. At stage six, 
is where this star, the protostar, actually becomes a star. It has collapsed enough, it's gotten small enough, and it's heated up its core enough that it is now producing nuclear reactions. In the meantime here, it had gotten a lot smaller. It had gone from 100 times the size of the sun to maybe only two or three times the size of the sun. It's gone down quite a bit, quite a bit in size. So it's getting a lot fainter. It was really, really bright there, even though it was buried in that cocoon. It's getting a lot fainter only because it's getting smaller. It's also increasing its temperature as it collapses. Once that energy is, starts being produced, then the temperature starts to rise again. So the temperature will rise even more, reaching it again towards the yellowish, yellowish stage, towards the sun, towards the sun's temperature. And the temperature will start to rise. And then eventually it will just kind of land here on the main sequence once it reaches what we call an equilibrium, once it's in balance. So even though it's now a star, it still wants to collapse. Gravity's still trying to pull the whole sun down to a point at the center. It wants to pull everything down together. It reaches an equilibrium when it finds a balance. When it starts producing energy, that energy wants to push the star apart. You create energy, I mean, you think about that, that is a lot of nuclear reactions going on. It's like a lot of atomic bombs going off at the center of the sun. They're trying to blow it apart. When that is exactly the same amount as the gravity that is pulling it down, it stays stable. So it's going to stay stable as long as it can keep producing enough energy to overcome gravity, then the star stays stable and it'll stay in nice, typical size, temperature. Nothing will change about it for the sun for you know, 10 billion years until it runs out of an energy source. It reaches equilibrium at stage seven. Stage six is where the nuclear reactions start to occur, but they're still not quite enough. You know, they just start occurring, they're occurring much more slowly, the temperature hasn't risen enough, so it's still collapsing. So the star is still collapsing even from stage six to stage seven. It first gets hot and then it collapses a little bit more until it reaches that level where the amount of energy being produced is just enough to balance the gravity trying to pull it down. Once that balances, then it's stable, and now it's going to stay there as long as it has hydrogen in its core. So as long as it can do those, you know, billions upon billions and billions of reactions every single second, it's stable, it's going to stay there. The sun can do that for 10 billion years. That's how much hydrogen is sitting there in the center of the sun. And then once it lands on the main sequence, as I said, stage seven is the long, boring one. Not a lot happens. Not a lot happens there. So here's sort of summary you know, what I did in, in uh, text version as to what I just showed you there. At stage six, stage six is the key one. That is where the core temperature, it's gotten hot enough through that collapse that it's reached 10 million degrees. 10 million degrees is that key number. That is how hot it has to be for nuclear fusion to occur. If you're less than 10 million degrees, you're not moving those protons fast enough that they can smash together and stick together. Under 10 million degrees, that's not going to happen. They're going to come close, but their, their repulsion, because of both being positive charges, is going to push them back away before that. At this 10 million degrees, nuclear fusion has started and we have a star. 
It's not a main sequence star yet. It's not quite on the main sequence. It's still working its way there. Because it started producing energy, but it's not producing enough energy yet. So it's still, it's, it's still trying to contract down. Gravity is still pulling it down. Right now, gravity is winning the battle. Gravity is pulling down more than the energy pushing it out. But as gravity pulls it down more, it's going to keep heating it up inside. And it increases the nuclear reactions. So as it gets hotter and hotter at the core, the temperature increases. Temperature is increasing. The amount of nuclear reactions is increasing. It's hotter. It's easier to smash those two protons together. So it's going to eventually then reach a balance where that amount of energy being produced is just enough to balance the gravity trying to pull it together. That's when we call it a main sequence star. So that's when it's actually on the main sequence. And it will stay there as long as we have hydrogen. As long as there is hydrogen diffused in its core, it's going to stay there. That varies depending on the, on the star. A much more massive star than the sun might last a few million years. Might stay on the main sequence for a few million years. It has a lot of, it has a lot of hydrogen there, but it's, using a, it's going through it a lot faster. A star like the sun might be 10 billion years. A star less massive than the sun, little tiny stars, they're not producing all that much energy. It takes them a long, long time. There are stars that could actually last hundreds of billions of years. So there are some of those very coolest stars when you get down to the very edge of the main sequence. When you get down, you know, way down over here, those very coolest stars, these things could last 100 billion years. Well, our best estimate of the age of the universe is probably around 14 billion years right now. So that means that any of these stars that have ever formed are still there. They've never left the main sequence. There hasn't been enough time in the history of the universe for them to have evolved. We can estimate what they're going to do based on our models and based on what we have seen with other stars. But these ones, you know, come back when the universe is six, seven times older than it is right now and we can see what really is happening to them. So in order to really be able to see it, we have to wait. We, there's nothing we can do. We can't go and you know, hurry up one of these stars. They're just nice and slow, taking their good old time in terms of you know, using up their hydrogen. So even though they have a lot less hydrogen, they're so faint that they're not using it very, very quickly. They don't need a lot of it to balance gravity. Whereas the more massive stars need much more to balance gravity. Yes, sir? Did I miss stage five? Did you miss stage five? Did I not put a stage five on there? Let me see. Oh, let's see. Last stages, maybe. I bet we did. What was stage five? Stage five is part of the protostar, protostar stage. It's just, it was just split into two as the temperature was increasing. So stage four and five are really, are really pretty similar. It was just, I don't know why they've divided into two, but they're really part, both part of the protostar stage. So. Yes, I did not put that one up. It should have been maybe four slash, four slash five on there. Okay? All right. So here, a couple, next couple slides are just showing a few pictures of some of these protostars. So there's some interesting things that go on in them. There's a disk of material in many cases that forms around them. So we're looking here in the visible, visible, these all visible pictures, yeah. So you're looking deep inside 
this cocoon, so you're really having to look for the very faint objects that are buried in there, the little bit of light that is coming out of them, that's, that's coming out of that cocoon, and you get a disk of material. That's where the planets would be forming. So it's collapsed down and there's this disk of material around the very young star. That would be where the planets are currently forming. Oh, someone? Thank you. So that would be where the planets are currently forming. What also happens is when it collapses around that disk, it also shoots out jets of material. So actually some of the material gets shot out perpendicular to that disk. So as the disk is forming and the planetary system is forming here, big jets of material get shot out and shot out into, this, into the universe. Here's another example of it down here where you can actually, you don't really see the star. There's a star here at the center that's in the process of forming. But it's shooting out two jets of material. And what you really see is where those jets are smashing into other materials. So it's shooting out this jet of material, this big stream of material. And when it interacts, when it hits the gas and dust out there in space, it causes it to glow. And we see some evidence of star formation in that. Jets are a very common thing in astronomy. We see them not only with stars, but we'll see them with galaxies as well. Galaxies and black holes at the center of galaxies do the very same thing, except on a much larger scale. This is just a star sending out a beam. You can imagine how much larger it would be when it's the center of a galaxy sending out beams when you'd be looking at you know, a galaxy at the center here and these two big beams of material going out from it. So a lot of energy being produced. Similar process as things have collapsed down to a disk and then material is getting thrown out sort of perpendicular to that disk. Now the other picture is just a couple, again, protostars, one looking in the infrared in over towards Orion. Orion is one of those areas where a lot of stars are forming. So just pictures of a couple of protostars. They don't look like much of anything. Again, they're buried deep in those cocoons, so even in the infrared, and if you've got one close enough and you can sort of see it, you can sort of peek into that cocoon, you've got enough, it's bright enough that it's just sort of starting to peek out, you can start to get some images. But they're buried deep inside these cocoons. It's very hard to see a lot of what's going on. A lot of what we know is based on theoretical models. And so now we can get some infrared and radio observations to sort of follow or see the different stages as stars are currently for, as stars are forming. Now, I told you we'd looked at that. That was all for a star like the sun. Nice thing with star formation is it really doesn't matter a whole lot. It only, the only thing that really changes is where the star ends up. The whole pattern is really the same. And you can see as a sketched here on the HR diagram, you've got a one solar mass um, protostar forming a star in the middle. So that becomes something like the sun. If it had less mass than the sun, it follows pretty much the same pattern. Just shift it over to the right, just towards cooler temperatures. If it's got more mass than the sun, it follows the same pattern. Again, just shift it. So the only thing that's changing there is really the mass of the object and where it ends up and what the final temperature and luminosity will be on the main sequence. So for a star like the sun somewhere here, as you get towards smaller and smaller stars, they're going to follow a very similar pattern, just ending up further down on the main sequence at a much lower temperature and at a much lower luminosity. Higher and higher masses would do the same thing. If you went to 3 and 5 and 10 solar mass stars, they just end up further and further up the main sequence. 
So the process is identical. Now we'll see that doesn't happen at the end of a star's life. Things change a little, do things a little bit differently at the end of a star's life. And there's a big difference between what happens at the end of a life of a star like the sun versus a star that's, you know, 20 times the mass of the sun. Not a big difference in when they're forming. When they form, it's all the same process. It's collapsing, heating up, produces nuclear reactions, ends up on the main sequence. The only differences are where it's going to end up on the main sequence. That depends on the mass. And the other one that I didn't mention specifically on here is how long it takes. The amount of time that it takes is different too. I didn't give you the tables and you don't need to know the exact numbers, but if you looked at those, we gave you the numbers for the sun earlier on, a three solar mass star is going to collapse a lot faster. Gravity's a lot stronger, it's going to collapse a lot faster. So stars much more massive form a lot quicker. Got more gravity there as they start to form, they sort of just takes over, boom, they form, they go through their lives, and they're gone. So a star much, much more massive than the sun can go through and form and go through its life and be gone before a star like the sun has even, you know, gotten down here and made it to the main sequence. Some of those massive stars just, you know, breeze through their lives. They don't waste any time, you know. Okay, we're ready to form, boom, a star, okay, had your life a couple million years, boom, you're gone. That's how fast they'll go. And the slower, the lower mass stars take even longer. So even once a star like the sun is formed, if another star of a lower mass started forming at the same time, it's still slowly working its way down there, you know, nice and patient, no hurry, just going to try to get down there, going to get down there to the main sequence eventually. Once it gets there, it's going to be there for 100 billion years anyway, what's its hurry? So the other big thing is the time, how, lo how long it takes to do that. Okay. Now, as you get down to the edge of the main sequence there, way off the lower right, the temperatures get at the center get less and less. The sun was about 15 million degrees, you get down towards 10 million degrees. There comes a point where it doesn't quite reach that 10 million degrees. So it never becomes a star, right? If it doesn't reach 10 million degrees, it's not fusing hydrogen into helium, it's not producing its own energy, and it becomes a failed star or what we call a brown dwarf. You could think of you know, planets as very, very tiny brown dwarfs. Usually a brown dwarf is something that's pretty big. It was real close to being a star. It just didn't, wasn't quite massive enough. Didn't have quite enough matter to heat up that temperature to the, 15 mil, the 10 million degrees that was necessary. And these are just a couple examples of brown dwarfs where you can see one star and then another very faint object orbiting it. Much too bright to be a planet, still hotter than that. It's been heated, it's heated up, you know, it's not a Jupiter. Jupiter would have to be many, many times bigger to have been a brown, to have been what we call a brown dwarf. But much, much larger. And we see a number of these objects in the visible, you can see them, very close to other stars. So sort of like a, you know, star that came very close to being a double star system, having two stars present, but not necessarily not necessarily quite. Now our solar system is kind of like that in a way. Jupiter though would have to be, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but it would have to be like 50 or 100 times bigger. It would have to be, it's not just Jupiter wasn't real close to being a star. It's not like it only needed a little bit more mass or twice as much mass. It needed a lot more mass. But if you'd had that amount of mass, then we would have had, we would have had actually two stars. You'd have had one star there and you'd have had a little tiny star 
you know, elsewhere. So you'd have, you know, you'd never have nighttime sometimes. You know, you'd have sun during the day and you'd have Jupiter blazing at night sometimes. Yes, sir? How would that um, affect us? If there were two stars? If Jupiter were very low mass, it might not affect too much. As Jupiter had a higher and higher mass and a lot of double star systems don't have planets. Because you can't get a nice stable orbit around two stars. You get too close to one, all of a sudden it becomes unstable and you go close and boom, you get flung out into inter interstellar space. And then it gets kind of cold. So it would affect, in terms of if it were very, very small and maybe even a little further away, it might not affect things drastically. It might be to the point where you just have, you know, if you'd ha you could get a stable planet and double star system, you just have, you know, daytime all day long. Have the bright sun at night and the faint sun, or bright, bright sun at day and the faint sun at night. So, but if Jupiter was big enough to have been a star, it would be relatively, it wouldn't be just this nice bright pinpoint of light. It would actually be, you know, not a big disk like the sun, but it would be rather, it would be very bright in the sky. It would be the brightest thing that you'd be, next brightest thing after the sun that you'd be able to see. The last picture over there actually shows a bunch of brown dwarfs in a little cluster and look like little stars here, but this is a picture taken in the infrared. So you're looking at objects that are very bright in the infrared part of the spectrum, which would be these very cool brown dwarfs. They're not emitting a lot of visible light. They're harder to see in the visible part of the spectrum. But in the infrared, that's where they're emitting most of their light, so they're much easier to see there. So these brown dwarfs actually look like they're quite common, that it's very easy to form these little teeny tiny almost stars. Okay, then looking at star clusters. Nice thing about looking at star clusters, we're going to look at it a little bit here and we're going to come back to it again in the next chapter. The nice thing with star clusters is that they produce a lot of stars at once. You get a whole bunch of stars that formed and they all formed at the same time. They all pretty much, pretty much started forming at the same time. And again, when I say that, I don't mean the exact instant. I mean astronomically. They formed over, you know, over a couple million years. They all started forming together. You know, there's some formed a little earlier, some a little, but, but in terms of an astronomical time scale, it's all the same. And they were also made up of the same stuff. So, you know, same material, same concentration of hydrogen and helium and carbon and oxygen, all about the same. So really what we can do when we study a star cluster is we can eliminate some of the variables. You know, we don't have to worry about when did they form. If we just look at a random group of stars, do we know that this one formed, you know, a billion years ago and this was 500 million and this was two billion, you know, we don't know. They're all different ages. When we look at a star cluster, all of those stars formed at really essentially the same time. So we can really look at, when we look at a star cluster, it's our one, one good way to study how mass affects the evolution of a star. Because the only variable left is what was the mass that happened to form. So we had some massive stars that formed, we had some less massive stars that formed. We can look at that when we look at it on the HR diagram and we can study how that mass has an effect on the evolution of those stars. So here's an example for a very young cluster. Pleiades star cluster, nice cluster in the constellation of Taurus right here. And you have relatively young, very blue stars. So when you plot the HR diagram, Plot temperature versus luminosity. You get a whole bunch of stars here that are part of this cluster. And it goes way up towards the top of the main sequence. Now we can see that it tells us, we can see how they're changing. Now there's not a lot of change here because 
These are all very young stars, so they're really all on the main sequence. These upper ones are probably just starting to leave. You know, really, if you drew in what we call the main sequence, it would go up a little more like this. These ones are actually not quite on the main sequence. They've actually started their end of their life. They're starting to move off. When we look at older and older clusters, we can start to understand then how things change by looking at a whole number of clusters. You know, one cluster doesn't tell us a whole lot. But if I look at another cluster, and two clusters, and three clusters, and ten, and a hundred, and a thousand, and ten thousand different clusters, all of slightly different ages, then they tell us, you know, show us, they essentially show us where those stars are going to go. Very early on, we know which stars are here. Over time, as, the, as these stars use up their fuel and they leave the main sequence, they'll form a different pattern and we can sort of learn about the evolution of the stars. This is what we call an open star cluster, which is a relatively loose grouping of stars. They won't stay together forever. You know, astronomical time scales again, of course, so over many millions of years and a billion years, they're slowly spreading out into space. Another type of cluster is a globular cluster. And you see there the HR diagrams much, much, much different. You still have a main sequence, but whereas in the Pleiades you didn't see anything in the red giant region, here you've got, look at all those red stars. That's all that's there. All those stars that were in the Pleiades are gone. Because the main sequence would go up here, so all of those stars are pretty much gone. They've lived their lives and they're, and they're gone. But now we can, you can sort of see what is happening to those stars as they go through their lives. Not the most massive ones, they're gone, but these stars that are just leaving, you can almost see the path that they take up here, perhaps, and back as they move around the main sequence, as their temperature and luminosity change as they use up their fuel. So as long as they have that hydrogen, they're here on the main sequence. Once that's used up, you can almost follow the path that they're taking and we can do theoretical models to try to fit. Okay, what's happening to the star? Where is it doing this? Where is it doing that? Really the subject of the next, next chapter. But studying the star clusters is really what can tell us you know, how, this, how things change. And we're going to look at this again in much more detail in the next chapter. But do notice, there's some stars here. These are actually stars that are part of another branch of the HR diagram called the horizontal branch right in here. So these stars right up here are all gone. There's no main sequence stars left here. They're all gone. They've all lived their lives and left the main sequence. And here is the Orion Nebula within the Orion Nebula. And again, just some pictures where we think there are stars currently forming and where we can actually see some very nice young stars here buried within the dust. Now here we're looking through the dust. That's infrared. So we're looking through the dust a lot better. Same picture, you know, same part of the sky, but one is visible. Everything's buried. Everything's hidden throughout, throughout this dust. We can't see it. In the other picture, we can see better. We're looking through the dust. We're looking in the infrared. Infrared penetrates that dust. So these would be stars that are currently working on forming. Stars, stars that are currently undergoing formation that are you know, protostars becoming very young main sequence stars come back in a few million years and that dust will start to dissipate by the energy of those stars. The Orion Nebula will be gone. Won't be the Orion Nebula we know today, but you'll have a nice young open cluster of stars there. Come back millions to billions of years after that and even most of those stars will be gone. So here's an example of a 
um, as you form those big stars, this is just an example of a sort of a simulation that was done. You've got some of the gas left around. So this is not a picture of anything. This is actually a computer model simulation where you took a lot of big particles in a big gas cloud, let it collapse, and let gravity take over. And what did gravity do? And what you find is that there are different concentrations as you get towards brighter and brighter areas here. So the black, there's essentially nothing. The reds and the oranges, you start to get more and more material. It's been concentrated, so you've got some streams of a little bit thicker material here. But you actually find some that form little disks around them and some that form a brown dwarf, depending on the actual mass. You could do the calculation, figure out how much mass there, how much, par- how much of the particles were there. So you actually form stars and actually form a little tiny star cluster, you know, theoretically. You can take a model, take many billions and ponds, billions of particles, and let them collapse under gravity. Let that computer model run for you know, however many tens of thousands of CPU hours it takes to do all those calculations and find out what's going to happen and do go through this step by step and find out where the stars are, where, what the stars might form like. So it gives us a, quite an idea. Not an exact, but it gives us something to compare things to. Now those big massive stars, which I mentioned up here, those big O and B stars that form first, and this is not part of this model, but when they do form, they actually emit a lot of radiation and they're pushing a lot of that gas and dust away. So forming a real big star first may do something in terms of minimizing how many little stars can form. Because you're pushing all that material away, you're stopping the star formation. Those real big bright hot stars are clearing it out. They're clearing out that nebula, wiping it out. Now that's not part of this simulation, so you don't really see that here. You're just seeing the small stars forming. Okay, so almost through chapter 11. So just to summarize. Interstellar medium had two parts. It had the gas and it had the dust. The gas was, you know, atomic, hydrogen, helium, plus little other stuff, maybe some molecules, water, carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide. The dust was bigger particles. The dust was really good at absorbing the light. So the dust is what made things fainter, made things look fainter. If you try to look at something through a dust cloud, it looks fainter. The gas doesn't do that. All the gas is going to do is absorb its particular wavelengths. So it absorbs just those particular wavelengths of light. We talked about a couple different nebulae. There were emission nebulae, which are hot gas clouds. Large, large hot stars formed. They ionize the hydrogen gas and they excite the electrons. Those electrons, as they start to jump up and down the energy levels, emit that glowing red light. And you'll see the emission nebula as a glowing red nebula. We had reflection nebulae, which I didn't mention here in the review. Reflection nebulae were the blue stars, but there was more dust around them. And the dust was reflected off the the material there. And there were dark clouds. Very, very cold and very dense, very dusty. And those block out a lot of the light. We can't see into them easily. That's probably where star formation begins, and we have to use the infrared to look into those. So infrared to look into them, or the radio. And remember that 21 centimeter I mentioned. We'll come back and mention that again. That will come back again as we talk about that. That is sort of like that red line of hydrogen. The 21 centimeter is the same thing to the radio astronomer. It's the very prominent line that tracks where the hydrogen is in the universe. Since hydrogen is almost everything in the universe, that really tracks where all the material is. 
And then the last part of this, we talked about star formation. Um, we started out with a big cloud of gas and dust, slowly broke itself apart, fragments into bigger, bigger fragments, and each of those would slowly collapse, would slowly collapse and form a star. Under gravity, it collapses. Temperature increases, luminosity increases. Once you collapse enough and heat it up enough, fusion will actually begin. You'll actually get to that 10 million degrees where hydrogen fuses to helium and you've formed a star. So that's where a star is born. That's where you've got a star. It still takes a little bit longer after that, as I mentioned, for it to get into balance, to produce enough energy to actually balance the, the contraction. So it's still trying to collapse. Gravity still wants to pull it down. So you can think of it as you know, a fight between gravity and the internal pressure. For the most of the life of a star, they're in balance. Early on, gravity wins. Gravity pulls it down to make it a star. Gravity wins in the long run. You know, gravity can be nice and patient. It can sit there and wait. You know, you're going to run out of energy eventually, and I'm going to win. I can wait 10 billion years, 50 billion years, 100 billion years. And that's the subject of the next chapter. Some of this we've actually looked at. We looked at some pictures. I showed you some pictures where we have some protostars and some of the cloud fragments, some of those pictures we looked at last time and this time to see where these have actually formed. The biggest determinant of where a star falls on the main sequence is its mass. High mass stars will form way up in the upper left hand corner, will fall way up there. Lower mass stars way down in the lower right. And time was a factor too. Those form very quickly. These take a long, long time to form and live for a long, long time. And then finally we talked about that you know, these clouds don't form one star, they typically form a group of stars. So they'll form what we call a star cluster. And in most cases, an open, so what we have now forming are open star clusters. So they're not really tightly bound, they're not stuck together. There's a group of stars right now, but if we come back in a few million years, they're slowly spreading apart. So you won't necessarily see the Pleiades star cluster if you could come back in a few million years. Some of those stars will have evolved off, finished their lives, and the other ones will have been slowly spreading apart. So that should finish. Are there questions for chapter 11? Before we rush and jump into chapter 12 and try to keep up. No? Okay. Jump on to chapter 12 and see what we can get started on that and then we'll finish this next week. Unless I really, really go fast and we finish it this week, but then we'd be almost back on schedule. So, Stellar evolution. So I told you, we're going to kind of skip the middle part of the life of a star. We've sort of, we formed a star now. Talked about how it collapsed from a big cloud of gas and dust. Now we're going to jump to the end of a star's life. What happens after that balance is lost again? You know, the whole thing, whole thing in forming a star was to get that balance, to produce enough energy that you could stop the gravitational collapse. For 10 billion years, for something like the sun, that's going to be in balance. It's producing exactly enough energy to keep it from collapsing and it's going to stay there. Eventually, if you could come back and look at the sun five, six billion years from now, you might see something like this. You know, gravity is going to take over and win again. And it would form what we call a planetary nebula. And what that is, is there's a very dense hot core, which is essentially the core, would be the core of the sun, that gets collapsed down too. That's where gravity wins. It pulls it down as small as it can possibly be. And the outer layers get expelled out into space. 
So you're seeing sort of puffs of the different outer layers that have been expanded out into space, different puffs of that in this, in this image. And this is just one example of a planetary nebula. That's something that will happen to the sun. Again, come back in six billion years to actually see it. So what we're going to look at here, and you know, you know, first unit is leaving the main sequence. You know, we, just, we just got there, now we're leaving. We're skipping that 10 billion, we're skipping that 10 billion years worth that's sort of not, not meaningless because it's kind of important to us that the sun is that stable for 10 billion years. If it weren't, we'd be in trouble. You know, wouldn't be very pleasant if the sun was getting, you know, 6,000 degrees today, but the sun was going to go up to 7,000 degrees tomorrow and then down to 5,000. You know, talk about major climate change, right? You know, it's going to get real hot and it's going to get real cold. That would not be a pleasant thing. It's very nice for us that the sun keeps a very constant temperature for many billions of years. So we're going to look at the sun. What happens to a star like the sun? So how does it leave the main sequence? What happens? And how does it change? And then we'll look at the other extremes. We did this with the formation of a star, but there wasn't much of a difference. There's more of a difference when a star leaves the main sequence. At the end of its life, there's a bigger difference between what happens to a star that is 10 times the mass of the sun and a star like the sun. There's a very big difference. There wasn't a very big difference when they formed. One ended up further up on the main sequence, but the, the process was the same. What we do end up with the most massive stars, and we looked at that with our picture of the day today, was a supernova explosion. So the stars can eventually become so unstable in their center that they tear themselves apart. A massive explosion, you know, beyond anything we could possibly comprehend. You know, you know, forget a nuclear explosion would be nothing. You know, it could blow up a nuclear bomb on the sun, it wouldn't even notice it, let alone a supernova explosion itself is tearing the entire star apart. And then, as I said, we'll come back to star clusters and we're going to look at how we can understand this. I've given you sort of a brief overview of that, these last couple slides in the last chapter. We're going to look at it in a little bit more detail here and how we can actually observe it. Again, you can't look at one star. We can't just pick that star out and say, I'm going to watch it my whole life and see how it changes. You're not going to see anything. It's never going to, no, not going to change. From our point of view. But when we look at star clusters, we can look at one now, and we can look at a star cluster that's, you know, a billion years younger and a star cluster that's a billion years younger, how did the stars change over those billion years? So we can sort of jump ahead instead of being, having to watch a single star, we can look at large groups of stars and be able to interpret what is happening to them. And then ending up with sort of the cycle of stellar evolution which pretty much just says that you start off with a cloud of gas and dust in space and you go back to it. At the end, all the stars, they might explode as supernovae, they might end up as planetary nebulae, but they're putting material back into space. That's another very fortunate thing for us, because we wouldn't be here otherwise. You know, if those stars weren't putting material back into space and supernova explosions weren't occurring, you know, our models right now say that when the universe formed, it formed hydrogen and helium. Well, we're not made of hydrogen and helium, right? We're made of lots of other stuff. All that stuff had to have been formed in a star and then has to get back out into the universe somewhere. So in order for us, you know, all of you think about that, that means that the iron that's part of your blood and the carbon that's part of you and the oxygen you're breathing would have all been formed somewhere deep in a star and probably expelled back out through a supernova explosion. So all these supernovae, as I said, we're seeing several hundred a year, you know, eventually contributed to all the matter that you see nowadays. Anything that's not hydrogen or helium would have been part of a supernova explosion because that's the one way to get the material one way to get the material back out into space. Okay. 
So here's what's happening. Here's that star on the main sequence, and I've sort of mentioned the equilibrium before. This is sort of a little diagram showing it. When you have a star in equilibrium, all it means is that at every point throughout the star, there's a certain amount of gravity pulling those particles down, and there's a certain amount of energy coming from the inside trying to push those particles out. So gravity wants to collapse the whole thing down to nothing. The energy that's being produced at the center wants to tear the star apart. And who's winning? Right now, for something like the sun, they're perfectly balanced. So just enough energy is being produced to balance the gravity, and it keeps the sun very stable for 10 billion years. When you're in an equilibrium, if there are slight changes, and what this is showing is that there'd be you know, a slight change, and these are greatly exaggerated, but if you were to say a slight change, say the sun were to get a little bit hotter at the center. Okay? Some reason it got a little, instead of 15 million degrees, it went up to 16 million degrees. Well, energy is going to be started, energy is going to start producing more rapidly. You're going to do more reactions. It's going to get, so it's hotter, you're producing more energy. That starts to push the star apart. It starts to push it apart. So it gets a little bit larger. It's going to expand, cause that star to get a little bit bigger. As it expands, you know, what happens when something expands? Does it heat up or cool off? Hmm? Cools off, right? If you, heat, if you expand something, it usually cools off, gets, gets cooler. So you're going to cool off the interior, slow down the nuclear reactions, and balance it back again. So it's going to be in an equilibrium. It's going to stay very stable. If you get a little bit more energy being produced, it would cause the sun to expand a tiny bit, but that would immediately cool it off and put it right back where it was. So it's not going to change drastically. While you have that equilibrium, you're what, what we call imbalanced. And the sun will stay like that and not change very much, at least overall, over many billions of years. Eventually, though, something happens. You only have a finite amount of hydrogen at the core of that star. It's being produced into helium at an incredibly rapid rate, meaning so many billions upon billions upon billions of reactions every single second. And what happens is eventually the hydrogen is gone. Eventually you're going to use it all up. Might take a couple million years for a very massive star. Might take 10 billion years for a star like the Sun. Might take 100 billion years for one of these little tiny stars. But eventually you're going to use up all that hydrogen. And the star is now going to leave the main sequence. The main sequence is where it's in balance. So when it's exactly balanced, eventually Something's going to happen, and one of, and one of those is going to win. And since gravity's the patient one, it's just got no place to go. You know, there's, there's no finite amount of gravity. It's going to sit there and stay. Eventually, it uses up all that energy is used up, counteract, trying to counteract gravity, and the outer star. What's going to happen? The star will start leaving the main sequence. So, what happens depends on the mass of the star. Something like the sun, or of much lower mass has a very mild life. Very mild life, very relatively mild death, too. The core will be left at the center. So the core will contract down to something about the size of the Earth, which is about as tight as you can possibly pack matter, you know, putting the electrons touching each other, essentially. You're packing all the space out of the atoms here in the, in the Earth, you know, how much empty space there is in, inside everything. If you could get rid of all that space between the atoms, you could take something the size of the sun and compress it down to the size of the Earth. 
Not changing the matter at all. All you're doing is pushing it together as close as you can. So those electrons are now repelling each other. You're getting the electrons so close together that the electrons are pushing against each other and saying, hey, we don't want to get any closer than this. You know, it's getting too close to me. So that's what will happen to the sun. It will become what we call a white dwarf star, way down below the, below the main sequence on the left-hand side. And the outer layers get propelled out into space during this process. And we'll look at that in a little bit more detail. But it's a relatively quiet process. They get pushed out into space. You know, not a very violent, not an explosion. They just slowly get puffed out into space and ends the life of a star similar to the sun or even less massive or even a little bit more massive. It's those biggest stars, the highest mass stars, which are the interesting ones. The real high mass stars literally go out with a bang. They explode. Okay, there's no sound associated with it. You're not going to get a sound wave from the supernova because it can't travel through through the vacuum of space. But they will, they will explode and we just saw that example today where we looked at one, you know, a supernova that exploded that we just, just observed occurring now. Of course it occurred, and I'm trying to remember the distance to that. I'm thinking that was about 30 some million light years away. So actually that supernova that we saw occurring this you know, past month happened 35 million years ago. You know, it just taken the light that long to get to us. But any high mass star will do that and will go out essentially with a bang. It will go out with an explosion. So what's happening with the sun and with a star like the sun is that when it's born everything was pretty much mixed together uniformly. You had 90% hydrogen, 10% helium. And it was pretty much uniform throughout. But deep down in the core of the sun. And again, it's not the whole sun. Not out to the, here's the surface of the sun, here's the core. That's where, the, where it's hot enough. Out here the temperature is not high enough to fuse hydrogen to helium. So you don't change anything. When you look far out from the sun, nothing changes very much. So the surface of the sun now is the same composition of hydrogen and helium that it was when it formed. It didn't change. If you could look at the core, the core right now, well, still got lots of hydrogen left, but it has a lot of helium that is formed. Closer you get to the center, the more helium you have. The higher the temperature, the more that hydrogen has been converted to helium. Come back five billion years later, and it gets even worse, right? You've now produced, there's hardly any hydrogen left at that core. If you look at where the core distance is here, yeah, there's still some, but not very much. Most of that hydrogen has been converted to helium and is, so you don't have any energy source at the center. The only source of energy for the sun is producing hydrogen to helium. Once there's all helium there, you have no hydrogen atoms to fuse together to make helium or you don't even have enough where the concentration of helium, you know, now it's 90 plus percent helium and less than 10 percent hydrogen, the hydrogen atoms are going to have a harder time finding each other to fuse together. So that core is changing. The core changes while you're on the main sequence. The outer layers don't. Outer layers stay essentially the same. So when you look at the surface of the sun, even if you come back 10 billion years from now when the sun has pretty much exhausted the hydrogen in its core, the surface of the sun will look pretty much the same. Composition-wise, still got hydrogen, still got helium, about the same percentages. So it's not changing hydrogen to helium throughout. It only occurs at the center of the star. And what happens as we use up the fuel is 
the core starts to contract. So you end up with a core here, and especially at the very center, you just have a hot, dense core that's just what we call helium ash. You know, ash is in when you burn something, you get the ashes left over. Well, the ashes of burning hydrogen are helium. So the helium is not something else that's going to burn, and you have it just condensed at the, at the core there. Around that, you have an area with more hydrogen still. So you have the very dense core, the central part of the core. Around that, you have a source of energy. You have a shell around it where it's still, still very hot, still over 15 million degrees, still over 10 million degrees, hot enough to burn hydrogen into helium, but not hot, but not, sorry, but not so, but not all the way down to the core anymore. So what that is doing, that actually, when that energy source occurs, as you get this shell, it starts to produce more energy around it. So it's starting to produce more and more energy. You're working its, it works its way out sort of slowly through the star. Not all the way out, but through the core, through the outer parts of the core. And it actually produces, produces more energy. So you actually get outside of the core. Not the whole star. You're never using the entire star. Most of the outer layers of the sun will never get hot enough to fuse hydrogen to helium. But you will work yourself a little further out into the, a little further out into the star. Temperatures will increase down there. And as those temperatures increase and that shell, that shell energy is being produced, it actually pushes out the outer layer. So the star is going to start to expand. Core collapses. Core gets much, much smaller. Outer layers start to expand. The sun is going to start moving off the main sequence. It's going to leave the main sequence. As the outer layers expand, they're going to cool off and it's going to get larger. So it's moving its way up towards the red giants. So it's moving its way up off the main sequence. It's going to move in that direction, up towards the, up towards the red giant region of the HR diagram. It's happening all together. You're forming the ash, you mean like forming the ash here? And then the shell starts to burn and it starts to expand out. It's all happening right now, even. You know, even now, you're starting to form a very central core where almost all the hydrogen is gone. Now, there's hardly any hydrogen at the very, you know, if you could go right to the center of the sun, it's probably almost all helium, even now. But there's still, the core is so big that it's still, it's slowly getting bigger. This happens when you get to the extreme, when the core has gotten big enough that there's not the same amount of energy being produced as it was. So here's the stages, stages 7 through 14. Again, you don't have to memorize them. But I do like you to note that stage 7, which is the main sequence, that was the last stage on the previous one, is by far still the longest, 10 billion years. Stage 8 is 100 million. These other stages are incredibly short. 100,000 years, 50 million years, uh, 10,000, 100,000. Essentially nothing. I mean, relative to 10 billion years, if you eliminate stage 8, which is a relatively long time, even 100 million years at least is somewhat long, the rest of these go by like that in terms of the sun and its evolution. So if you watched it, you know, watched it scaled, if you could watch it, put the whole life of the sun and watch it, you know, just continuously, and put it at scale so you could see it, those would just go by instantaneously. When you're looking relative to how long you sat there and watched the sun, you know, burning hydrogen to helium, burning hydrogen to helium. You know, for 10 billion years, all of a sudden, you know, you can go through these last few stages, which is become, from becoming a red giant 
which is stage nine, to being a white dwarf only takes you, you know, 50 million years. The other ones don't even matter. It takes a very, very small fraction of that amount of time. But again, note the times, note what's happening to the temperatures. 15 million degrees, going up to 50 million, 100 million, 200 million, three. The central temperature is going to get hotter and hotter. That's important because there are points when you get it hot, if you get helium hot enough, you know, you had to get hydrogen to 15 million or 10 million degrees to fuse it. If you get helium hot enough, helium will fuse. There's a new energy source coming down here when it gets to be a red giant. When it gets hot enough at that core, you can actually fuse helium into heavier elements. Temperatures are going to cool off. So the sun is 6,000 degrees. It is going to get cooler. It's also going to get a lot bigger, you know, 100 times the size it was. And the size, again, size is getting much bigger. So size gets larger, jumps back down for a little smaller, then gets much, much bigger again. So the sun will become a, go from a main sequence star through the subgiant to the red giant phase where it will stay. It then settles down as what we call a horizontal branch star. Goes back to be a red giant slash supergiant way up there. And then eventually, this is when it's, this is the end. Once it becomes that red supergiant, eventually those outer layers get so far apart. Remember I told you they'll fill the solar system out to you know, Mars probably? Eventually they're so far away from the center of the sun, they're not really being held very strongly. And as the sun becomes unstable, it, unstable, it can sort of puff them out and pushes them off into space. And they just no, no, sort of become detached from the star. And they just will slowly spread out into space. Leaving behind the white dwarf at the center, so the white dwarf is the core of the star left there at the center, which will then has no energy source. We've already used up, we used up the hydrogen, then we used up the helium. For something like the sun, there is no other energy source. And it will just slowly cool off. And it would become what we call a black dwarf. So difference, white dwarf is just the very hot, very high temperature. Over many billions to a trillion years, it will slowly cool off. But that takes a long time. There would not be, have been time yet in the universe for one of those to form. So there are no, would be no known black dwarfs at this point. Okay. So stage nine. This is when it's getting to be heading towards the red giant branch. Seven was the main sequence. Going from seven to nine, since I did skip eight there, is just going through the, through the subgiant. So it's on its way up to the red giant phase. But the core shrinks, so the core is constantly getting smaller and smaller. The outer layers are getting larger and larger. So the core contracts, the outer layers expand. It's now become a red giant star. They're also getting cool, so they've gotten cooler. Red giant, it's gotten cooler. It's moved to much lower temperatures. The sun may only be about 4,000 degrees at the time. But it'll be a lot larger. So it'll get a lot brighter because it's moved up the main sequence. And it's now going to be, you know, as big as Mercury, as big as Mercury's orbit. So it's not going. So in terms of the Earth, yes, it's gotten cooler, but it's also gotten a lot bigger. If you think about the Sun, I mean, Mercury's orbit—that's going to be a tremendous Sun that you're going to be seeing in the sky. It's not going to be that little, little tiny half degree thing that the Moon can block out. You know, once you get to this stage, you know, you could still see, you know, Moon will pass in front, Moon will pass in front of the Sun, but it won't look like an eclipse anymore. The Sun will be way too big. The sun will now be 100 times bigger than it was. So right now the moon and the sun are about the same size. Well, if the sun was 100 times bigger, you wouldn't even know. You barely notice it passing in front of the, in front of the disk.
So that would be a red giant star. But its luminosity has increased. So sort of ignoring what I just told you about the eclipses, it's going to get so much more luminous, it'll be a lot brighter, even though it's cooler, it's going to be a lot brighter, and it's probably going to be a lot hotter for us too. Just because it's so much bigger, you have so much more surface area sending out that energy that Earth would also get way too hot at that point. So temperature has cooled down, but its luminosity is so much bigger. It's, it's gotten so much larger that that overwhelms the fact that the overwhelms the fact that the temperature has gone down. So temperature has gone down, that should make it a little bit cooler, but it's gotten so much bigger, so much more luminous because, if, because, well, because it's gotten so much bigger, it's gotten so much, more, so much more luminous. And that will become a red giant star. Now a red giant star, the energy source, again, was just that hydrogen burning around the core. There was, the core was, was dead, essentially dead. It's just that helium ash at the core. And I think that's my, oops, no, we'll do, the pic, do this one first in the picture. So this is sort of what happened on the HR diagram. It moves from, from the main sequence, it goes through the subgiant phase, and that happens very slow. This will happen relatively slowly as the sun is going through its life. So as you get towards the end, towards you know, 4 billion years from now, 5 billion years from now, the sun would slowly start to move, slowly start to cool off and get a little bit larger very slowly over time as it's using up the rest of that hydrogen in its core. As, you, as the hydrogen starts to disappear, it goes faster and faster. So it goes, this goes faster and this will slowly zip up and it'll start to expand greatly, get much, much larger in size. And that would reach the red giant phase at stage 9. Stage 10, yep, got time. Stage 10 is helium fusion. So that, that while it's been collapsing, that core is still collapsing. Gravity is constantly pulling that core down smaller and smaller and smaller and heating it up. Just like we heated up the protostar into a star, we're heating up this core to even hotter. It took 10 million degrees to fuse hydrogen. Sun started at 15 million degrees. Eventually, you're going to hit about 100 million degrees. Little bit warm. At that point, you can actually get helium atoms to now smash together. A little harder to smash helium together. You've got two protons and two protons. So instead of just one positive charge against one positive charge, you've got two and two you're trying to push, against, push off against each other. It's a lot harder. It takes a lot higher temperature to do that. And what happens is because of the nature of that, that very dense material, the way it has collapsed, the helium doesn't just start slowly the way hydrogen started burning it, just started burning relatively slowly. It starts with a flash. It's sort of the whole core starts immediately fusing hydrogen into he helium into carbon very, very quickly. And as it says, within hours, very, very short time frame, the star is now was out of, was out of equilibrium there for a while. It had been collapsing. Now it's trying to overcome that and restore that equilibrium. So it has to kind of, that, that core had collapsed. Now it's got to expand that core back out again. It takes a lot of energy to expand this very dense, compact core and expand it a little bit. As it does, it cools off the temperatures enough that the, then the helium starts to burn at a much more normal rate. But this is what we call the helium flash. That's that peak at the, at the, as it moved up through the red giant phase. At some point, for a star like the sun, that helium is just going to all of a sudden start to, start to burn. 
And I'm going to stop there. We'll come back and finish this up next week. Um, and then I will do, as we said with the exam, I will go ahead and give you the exams for those who came in later. Give you the exam next Thursday. Not in class. I'll give it to you Thursday. So, and then hand it, you'll, you'll turn it in on Tuesday, the following Tuesday. Otherwise, have a good weekend and I will see you next week.